She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm Sarah Gorski, and I'm here again with Ms. Adrienne Snow. Adrian, for audience members who haven't met you yet, I have a question. Okay. What is your definition of a broad? Okay, so my mom, this is like so random, but I'm going to explain like how I got to this thinking. Uh, I taught my mom the term fuckboy last, uh, like two weeks ago, and... <laughs> She was immediately offended because how dare I say fuck in her presence? How um, dare you? <laughs> how dare I say fuck? But uh, also, like, why would we say that? Like, why would you call a fuck boy? What? What? What is a term? Is there another term you can use, Adrian? I was like, well, I guess fuck boy is our is our version of playboy, and I I would say that <laughs> broad is like the old school version of bad bitch. That's how mm. when I think of a broad. I think of. Oh, this is a someone who's bitch. like a bad bitch. Like this is someone who, you know, was doing things that weren't expected of them for the time that they were in. That's my definition of a broad. So. Fuck yeah, that's a great definition. All right. Well, Adrian, <laughs> you have brought us abroad today, uh, yeah. but I don't know who they are. So tell us, who have you brought us? So I have brought Mary Seacole. She is considered one of the, or if not the original nurse practitioner. Whoa, like the first nurse? Kind of, but you know, I know a lot of Florence Nightingale folks are like, hell no. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, as we talked about, we did an episode of Florence Nightingale not too long ago. <laughs> but there, you know, there has been this back and forth between Mary Seacole fans and Florence Nightingale fans about who would be considered the first. And But for some, she is considered the very first nurse practitioner. She was an herbalist. She was um, just a, a massage therapist, a midwife, and a nurse. So she was called the doctress. And that term encompassed all those things. They were nurse, masseuse, midwife, and herbalist. So her, originally her name was Mary Jane Grant. She was born November 23rd, 1805, to a Creole mother and Scottish father in Kingston, Jamaica. Creole and Scottish. What a heritage. Yeah. So she's just a really fascinating woman. And I feel like before I, I go even further, I should tell you that I only heard about this woman two weeks ago watching an huh. episode of Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that does not surprise me to hear because I do know you are one of the world's biggest Doctor Who fans. I am a huge Doctor Who fan. I'm not crazy about this season. But <laughs> when they introduced her, because I was thinking about, I was like, I'm coming on to this show. Like, who am I going to do? Like, there's no one that I just like know their information off the top of my head. And so when this black woman popped up on the screen and she said, I'm Mary Seacole or whatever. And the doctor's like, Mary Seacole, you are one of the first nurse practitioners. <laughs> you helped in the Crimean War. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait, they're doing that thing they do where they like introduce an actual historical character to the show. And I was like, yeah. oh, she would be perfect. <laughs> so yeah. looking into her life, and I was like, oh, she was a, a woman who started as an, uh, basically an herbalist, and I'm an herbalist, and uh, she basically was going alongside and, and giving aid to the soldiers during the Crimean War at the same time as Florence Nightingale. But wow. before we get to all of that, let's start in Kingston, Jamaica. For those who don't know 
Mary C. Cole also wrote an autobiography published in, I want to say, 18, in the 1870s. I'll say that. If you have time, it's 200 pages. It's a great resource. It's really fascinating. And she is hilarious in her own really? way. She's just so blunt. It's just like... That surprises me of like literature of that time period in general. <laughs> that it would be hilarious. <laughs> well, there's one quote. I put it on Instagram because I was like, she's just the casualness with which she says things. She's like, I ran into some soldiers from, you know, the 48th in Crimea. And we were talking old times over some wine. Spanish, I suppose. But it was very nasty. <laughs> I was like, really? Like, why are you telling us that you had nasty wine? <laughs> Um, she's so great. I highly recommend reading it. But so she starts in Kingston. Her father is not really a part of the picture. I should make that very clear that he was a Scottish soldier. And um, the feeling is that he came into her mom's life and her mom is Creole black woman. And then he was gone. So we don't really hear much about him. But mm. her mother was also, oh, sorry. Her mother was the doctress and Mary was the mother. So her mother was nicknamed the Doctress, and she ran a boarding home called the Blundell, which is one of the top hotels of Kingston during that time. A boarding home could also be a hotel as well as a place to to board people who, who lacked a proper home. As a child, she went off to live in a group home away from her mother for a while before returning to her mother when she was 12 and beginning to assist her mother in the practice of Creole medicine. Uh, to eight officers at the Up Park Camp and Newcastle. Because at the time, Jamaica was basically an island that was also, um, I can't think of the word, but like a military encampment where, you know, soldiers would come through for war, for whichever. I could also talk about the history of slavery in Jamaica and all that kind of stuff, but that's not what this episode's about. So through that return to her mother and working at Blundell House, she went on to decide to practice herbalism. And she tells the story of like, she became so enamored with the idea of, of taking care of people and wanting to aid people that she used to practice what her mother did on her doll. And so anything her Aww. mother did, she would do on the doll. And she was like, you know, I think that children are such great actors and that they they always are looking to basically recreate the world with the things around them. So she's really that just like so, so cute. eloquent. Practicing yeah. on her little doll. Practicing on her little doll. <laughs> At the same time, and this is why I say, like, this woman is a bad bitch or abroad because she, in her late teens through her 20s, decides that she just wants to go travel and see the world. Now, to make this clear, this is a very light-skinned but still black woman Mm. in the middle of the 1800s deciding to take off and go see the world. And she talks about how there is that, you know, for her, probably a slight disconnect because this speaks to colorism of her not feeling she is truly a black woman. And she says this in a quote, mm-hmm. um, I have a few shades of deeper brown upon my skin, which shows me related. And I am proud of the relationship to those poor mortals whom you once held enslaved and whose bodies America still owns. And I was like, oh. <laughs> like I'm like, that's still that quote, even to this day still makes a lot of sense, you know, with what we've seen of current times. But There's also the disconnect of her being a light-skinned Black woman. And so being able to kind of traverse through the world a little bit more openly than a dark-skinned Black woman. Mm -hmm. And her understanding of like, understanding like, yeah, I am a part of Blackness, but she never calls herself Black. She doesn't understand why she sometimes has to deal with the same repercussions as like a darker-skinned person does, where she comments on walking through the streets with her friend and, you know, thinking that neither is fair, but why should she be faced with the same type of taunting as her friend when she is not the same shade? 
uh, which is fascinating to hear because I think a lot of times when we talk about colorism, we don't talk about it from the perspective of like the internal aspect of it, of, of yeah. what it is to be like, I'm not light skinned, but I'm not dark skinned. I'm a brown yeah. caramel is what I call it. So yeah. I kind of traverse both sides, but you know, seeing having light skinned friends and what they go through versus what my mom, who's darker than me, goes through. It, it's rare that you get to see someone be aware of their own blackness, but also have that that viewpoint that they don't understand why they have to deal with it because of this privilege that they that is kind of unspoken mm. of. Um, yeah, interesting. So that's it was really fascinating reading that from her, and also coming from it not from a place of judgment or frustration with her, but like, oh, I I, I understand what she's talking about because for her it's frustrating and she doesn't understand the racism to begin with, but also she's had the great privilege of being in Jamaica, a light skinned black woman where that Mm. does come with privileges, you know, where she's not the darkest of the lot or whatever being, even being able to become the eventual owner of her own version of Blundell later or for her mom to own Blundell because her mom is also a light skinned black woman. There are privileges that come with that, that when they go out into the rest of the world, they no longer have, they're just black. Right. So when you change your contacts, when you go into a different group, your your status changes. Yeah, exactly. But she moves off to London for a year just to kind of just to go be a part of it, just to kind of travel the world and see what it was about. And she finds herself returning back a few like a year later for two more years. And then she ends up going to Haiti and Cuba uh, before finally returning to kind of wrap up her time with her patroness, where she was also a caretaker to a woman who who passed. Like her nurse? She was kind of like her nurse, kind of more like a, like a doctress. So she kind of does all the things because mm. mm-hmm. there wasn't that separation in Jamaica as much that uh, a woman had to step down below a man. Like if you were a doctress, then as a midwife, as an herbalist, as a nurse, you were respected like a doctor because you were mm. the medical aid of, of the land. And so- she comes back to do that, and in that time, she's courted by Mr. Seacole. I believe Edwin Horatio Seacole is his name. He was an Englishman. Um, Edwin Horatio. Very handsome. He courts her, and they were married for about eight years before he died. But the way she talks about him in her autobiography, it was like, I was given a proposal that I feel like I could no longer deny. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, this woman. And she got married in her 30s. So it wasn't like something where she was 16. She went off and she was like, I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to go travel the world. I'm going to go do all these things. And now that I'm back, I feel like financially speaking, yes, this is the best option for me. And I should marry this man. But she's, is, this, oh. is this back in Jamaica or is this in? Back in Jamaica. She goes back to go, she goes back to Kingston. Um, they open up a shop. It's so brief. I've never heard a woman talk about a relationship less in my life. She's like, we open up a shop. And in that time, he's so fragile and sick. Poor soul. Poor soul. Oh. And he dies. She's like, and she he dies. She says that in her autobiography. <laughs> and he dies. My husband he dies. just dies. And he passes. And so, oh, poor soul. But anyways, I never felt any other man could really take my time with that. And I just didn't feel it. She's like, I just didn't find it important to find another suitor. And so I kept living my life. Basically, I'm, those that's the, you know, Cliff oh my Notes God, version I love of it. it. And I, I was like, it. this woman is just like, I ain't got time for all that. I have to keep it moving. So, yeah. so she goes on to 
continue being a, a doctress or an herbalist in her own way. And she starts um, working at the, I want to call it the Isthmus of Panama, which is basically a cholera outbreak happens in Panama. And she comes to the aid of those people. Mm. She's already working at the Blundell with soldiers and military doctors. So she starts to absorb their information because mm-hmm. she's tying in that folk medicine with the modern medicine of the time, which just to do a quick aside, is why I became an herbalist, to tie into preventative medicine with modern day medicine instead of separating the two. Because when they support each other, that's when you find that the ailments people have can be more easily taken care of and solved. So just to hear her talk about this in the 1800s, I mean, the women, the doctresses of Jamaica, of Kingston at that time, were actually leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the world in terms of what they understood about hygiene. Like they had oh, hygienic yeah. practices in terms of, of how they wanted to interact with their, their patients. She understood that an outbreak of, um, there was some outbreak of a disease. I can't remember exactly. It might've been smallpox or, or something along those. It wasn't typhoid, but it was something along those lines had been brought. Actually, you know what? I'm being an idiot. It was cholera. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is what, um, she said the reason they think the cholera outbreak happened in Panama was because it had been brought down on a boat coming from, I want to say the Americas. I can't find it in my notes. Regardless, she understood that virus transmission and bacteria transmission could actually happen by people coming to a new land, right? And mm-hmm. so, and how mm-hmm. disease spread. And it was just, I was like, this is so relevant to what we're dealing with now, where we have so many people who don't believe in science. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh my gosh. But for this woman in the 1800s to understand like, oh, this is how things move. And if you wash your hands and yes, we also need to support modern medicine, but also, yes, I have all this, this knowledge I have from just growing up in Kingston that I can bring and bring to this as well, that that is honestly the best holistic and well-rounded medicine you can possibly get. So she basically helps with the Isthmus of Panama. This leads her to the relationships that she will have when the Crimean War comes around in 1853. Now, the Crimean War, let me tell you something. It was time for me to look up the Crimean War and my eyes like rolled into the back of my head. (laughs) I was just like, I was like, I do not want to look up any type of war, I believe. Uh, so I'm just going to read exactly what I wrote about this. The Crimean War was a war waged from 1853 to 1856. It was uh, waged on the Crimean Peninsula between Russia, Britain, France, and the Ottoman Empire, now known as Turkey. It arose from efforts by Russia to protect the Orthodox subjects of the Ottoman Sultan and a dispute of the privileges of the Russian Orthodox and Romantic Roman Catholic Church in Palestine between France and Russia. So there's a conflict of France and Russia about who had the rights to Palestine in the 1850s, as well as them wanting to protect the rights of their religious holders in the Ottoman Empire or Turkey. Yeah. yeah so yeah. basically, same shit, different century. Right, and we and we had talked a little bit about the Crimean War when we did when we did the Florence Nightingale episode. We talked a yeah. little bit about it, but it was awful. And what we, I mean. You might be about to say this, but one thing listeners might remember from the Florence Nightingale episode was that way more men died in hospital than on the battlefield in the Crimean War because of infection. That's actually exactly what I'm about to say. So it ended in 1856 with the signing of the Treaty of Paris. But 
Before that, a big problem with the war was, like most wars, it was handled poorly. I clearly have a lot of opinions on war. <laughs> war handled poorly by the politicians and the generals? <laughs> I mean, you mean you just sent off your children to fight for these guys who just are swinging their dicks around? Uh, Men anyways. in charge handling things badly? We don't know what you're talking about on this podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, yeah, I definitely was like getting heated. But um, 250,000 casualties on each side of the, of the Crimean War were solely due to disease. It wasn't that they were being shot. It was that they were getting so sick that they were just dying of disease. And this is where most people know Mary Seacole, if they even know who Mary Seacole is. Now, did you know about Mary Seacole before I, I talked about, started talking about her? You know, I'd heard her name before, and I think I knew that she was a physician of some kind, but that is like all I knew. I didn't know any details about her. And I knew she, well, I knew she was black. You knew more than I did. I had never heard of her <laughs> in my life. She wasn't on my list. She wasn't on my radar for abroad, though. So I'm like really thrilled you, you brought her. The main thing, if you probably might have heard of her also when you were doing Florence Nightingale, because that's usually when her name comes up is with Florence. So in 1854, she found herself in London just after the Battle of Alma. I didn't do any research on Alma. I'm not going to explain the, re- the Battle of Alma. Google is your friend. <laughs> but she started to hear about the failings of the war and that there was so much disease going through and all the diseases that were happening were cholera, diarrhea, dysentery, diseases that are very common in the Caribbean and also Mm -hmm. things that she had dealt with in Panama. So this is like probably when I was like, oh my God, this woman. She petitions the war office to go as a hospital nurse and they decline. She was refused at- Every single turn. They needed people so bad. Is this because she's black? Is this some racist bullshit? Because they needed, I mean, we know from Florence that they desperately needed people, that they were like short Let me staff. Get there. Let's, let's lead into it. The Secretary of War refused her. The War Office. The flunkies at the desk refused her. And this is a woman who, who she came with referrals. She came with people who were like, I fully support you taking on Mary Seacole. She's one of the best uh nurses out there she knew things that helped us during panama during all these things that we wouldn't we wouldn't have been been here without her yeah the the, uh, so she goes to them she goes to florence nightingale and florence nightingale also denies her like oh wait at this point wait at this point florence is actually in sakuri i think she's like in the crimea is it she goes to florence in the crimea and like is like i want to work for you she's not in crimea yet this is like just getting out of London to get approval to go to Crimea. And the aides of Florence Nightingale keep turning her down. And they keep saying, it's from Florence, you can't come. Dang, Florence. We hate when we find those things out, but what can you, like, that's history. She realized that it was simply racism that these people denied her. And she says it in her book. She goes, was it possible that American prejudices against color had some root here? Did these ladies shrink from accepting my aid because my blood flowed beneath a somewhat duskier skin than theirs? And I was like, Ugh. damn. And she talks about just breaking down to tears, standing outside, taking it all in, that she had so many people who stood by her side and were like, yes, you should be there. You should go. You, you have an understanding of what's going on at the front line. And everyone said no. And, so, and this is damn. also why she's a bad bitch. Because she goes, so I decided... That no one could stop me and I will do it myself. And she got her ass to baklava and she had her friend, Mr. Thomas Day, set up a camp and she went to the hospital 
that she knew Florence Nightingale was at and was adamant, had a note from a recommendation from a friend and showed the note to everyone and got into the room with Mrs. Nightingale. Miss, she was never married. Miss, yeah, she does call her Miss, mm-hmm. Miss, Miss Nightingale. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> she's finally introduced to Miss Nightingale and she says of first viewing Florence, Florence Nightingale, that English woman whose name shall never die, but sound like music on the lips of British men into the hour of doom. And she talks about her impatience that Miss Nightingale was kind of like tapping her foot. Very, She was just busy. She had things to do. But what she does say, and this is why I'm like, everyone who thinks that Miss, Mrs. Seacole and Miss Nightingale hated each other are full of shit. Mm. She goes, what do you want, Mrs. Seacole? Anything that we can do for you, if it lies in my power, I shall be happy. And so oh. she just basically needed the time to stay there and she needed supplies. And so what goes on, what what ends up happening is that she does not stay with Florence Nightingale. She feels like mm. she's a better service closer at, at the front line. So she ends yeah. up setting up something called the British Hotel about two miles away from the front line. And it's basically there to aid people who are in need of, of medical care closer than, than the hospital that Florence runs further away. It also yeah. is uh, a boarding home, so people can have foods and meals and drink, as well as be taken care of, you know, because that was the thing she said. She, she talks so much about, I don't know, I have a mixed feelings about my position in the world sometimes as a woman, but she talks about how the reason her nickname was Mother Seacole was because for a lot of these men, they hadn't seen a woman in months, if not years, and that they would never have a home-cooked meal or have someone rebandage them ever again. They would never have that kind of maternal care and love in their life ever again. You know, some of them, she was the last face that they would ever see ever again in their life. And she's like, so how important is it for me to be there to come and 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 bring my services and and to give aid to these men who won't have that great fortune of being able to rest in their bed ever again. And it, it, it struck me because, you know, I, I think sometimes I can be resistant to people looking at me as a maternal figure or yeah. as, you know, uh, what is what's the term when you give emotional labor of being a woman? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And so to have this woman being like, what an honor it is to be able to to give this emotional labor and to give this aid to these men who may never have it again. I was like. Ah, fish. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, yeah. like, 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 it is a beautiful thing to be able to make a home for a person. And to hold that kind of space for them that nobody else could hold. Exactly. That doesn't necessarily have to come from me being a woman. And I think we're changing that as the times go along. But um, as history has, has held me to be for so long, like, yeah, that is kind of an honor when you put it like that. Yeah, so powerful. So that's why she created uh, the British Hotel. And at the end of it, you know, as things came to an end, she's like, I can't help but be slight, slightly braggadocious about about the aid that I was able to give to these men. And she, she just brings these notes into the autobiography of, like, all these men who were like, thank you so much for all that you did. And the the remedy you gave me for my jaundice really did help with my jaundice. And I was able to go home and I was able to do this. Oh. And I was, when she returned from Crimea, she stayed in London for a bit. She then returned to Kingston in 1860, but when the money ran a bit dry, this woman was so well-loved 
by mainly men, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> but she uh, mostly served men. She's on the battlefield and stuff. Those are most of the people she interacted with. But the, the Sea Coal Fund was created by the likes of the Prince of Wales, the Duke <gasps> of Edinburgh, and the Duke of Cambridge to help her be able to buy land in Kingston and build up her property. Oh, so my God. They they built a house. Now, this is when, at this time, this is probably around the 18, late 1860s, 1870s. The Franco-Prussian War also is about to begin, and she reaches out to Florence Nightingale's brother-in-law to see if she might be of aid in the Franco-Prussian War. And this ties into what you were telling me about Florence Nightingale being bedridden for a good portion of her life mm-hmm. after the Crimean War. Because when Florence heard of Mary Seacole coming back and wanting to be a part of this. And also that she was a well-renowned woman at the time. You know, people mm-hmm. loved her. She was she had a bust constructed of her in 1871 for the Royal Academy Summer Exhibit of 1872. Like, people yeah. truly loved this woman. But her response to Mary reaching out was that the British Hotel in Crimea, it was a bad house responsible, responsible for much drunkenness and misconduct. Florence said that? About Mary? Isn't that too she sent that in a letter to her sister. Yes. Cold as ice. There was this turn that happened, I think, for Florence, and that during the time, even though Mary knew that Florence would never be forgotten, you know, like people wouldn't always know who this woman is. I think there's a possibility that at the time, Florence thought she would be forgotten. Florence thought herself was going to be forgotten? Yeah. Or in, in some way felt that here's this woman who's still like, They've given her money to help her build her house, and she's still being able to, like, come be of aid. So there was probably some resentment there that their lives had changed towards the end of it, and that when she was in need, these men came to her aid. That's why I think there's such this drama, even to this day, of people who support Florence Nightingale not wanting to really give credit to Mary Seacole, as well as racism, right? Because and classism probably because Florence was Florence was a member of kind of the upper echelon, mm-hmm. like she was like buddies with like the royal family and shit like that. And it sounds like Mary wasn't quite that high a status. No, um, she was liked. Yeah, she but, was well liked by the soldiers and all that. But yeah, but she wasn't yeah. you know a part of the establishment. You know, she still went home to Kingston at the end of the day. I mean, but, I I think like when we heard Florence's story like i thought mm-hmm. she was great but i wouldn't put it past her that she would be racist and classist yeah because <laughs> uh i mean it's the the inherent problem of of white women right and like never quite being able to support women like inter- intersectionally you know yeah and so that was it, it was just really interesting to see that because when i first looked up mary c cole that was the biggest thing even the books the way some of these books that that talk on the women there's a whole book devoted just to crapping on Mary Sue Cole because they're like everyone's trying to give her credit but like Florence Nightingale you, you can't take that away from Florence like and I was like what is this this is a whole book dedicated to this but you know even Florence at one point had to give credit and she say like the high the in her book notes on nursing that one notes on nursing she does admit that she learned about hygiene from the doctresses of, of Kingston, Jamaica. And that's like her giving credit probably to Mary Seacole at that moment. Because yeah. there weren't, in terms of, of how they understood hygiene and how they understood how to like clean and 
sterilize a wound and how they also had to be clean in order to to help soldiers. That wasn't something that Florence Nightingale had encountered before she interacted with them. And so mm. she she did give that one credit. You know, it's probably like a blip and you miss it type of thing, like how Mary Seacole talks about her husband. But it was nice to just kind of see that. Yeah, I'm glad to see that too. But to wrap it all up, she she died on May 14th. Uh, 1881 at the age of 75 at her home in Paddington, London of apoplexy, or as we know it today, a stroke. And while she was well known later in her life, she was essentially erased from history until the 1950s. And uh, with the republication of her autobiography in 1884 is when people really got to hear her story again for the first time. It wasn't until the 21st century that she gained any type of true prominence, especially in Britain where she was listed as uh, number one on a list of the great black Britons uh, in 2004. Even though she's not really a Briton, right? Even she's not she's really Jamaican? Britain. Well, but see, Jamaica. Well, it's a colony, I suppose. It's a colony, so they still claim it. Fucking colonizers. And, and she died in <laughs> London, so you know. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But that's basically what I had to say on, on Mrs. C. Cole and, she was great, Adrian. Thank you for bringing her. What yeah, story. <laughs> she was awesome. I really enjoyed just hearing about her, and also just it was. I was so blown away that her life was just so easy to erase. You know, like I couldn't believe that it took two hundred years, basically, after her death for for one hundred fifty years after her death for her to really get her due. It's so common amongst all of the women we talk about on this podcast is that they're almost erased from history and and then someone digs them back up and then they make a resurgence. And uh, yeah. it's just such a common repeater that people people don't write down the women's stories or they try to erase them or mm-hmm. just not tell them. And, and that's the point of this podcast, right? So that we can like bring these women to light and start to put their, their names back in our mouths. Yes. If you have the time to pick up her autobiography it's called the wonderful adventures of mrs seacole in many lands and i highly recommend it it's a bit long there's one thing where she's talking about getting leg of pig for a man and i'm like man, <laughs> do we have to talk about this for this but song? she also was just like yeah my husband died i never my met another died. guy like big deal next <laughs> the wine was nasty but you know it was a good chat <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm like, man, is, am I this woman? Was I just re- reincarnated as as Mrs. Zekal? Because she's great. I also just really appreciate that, like that other side that we see of Florence too. So it's important to talk about like how our heroes aren't always all great, and that exactly. they all have their own their own shortcomings too. You know, and that's okay too. I don't think. You can take away what Florence did for the world just because she happened to be a woman of her time. You know, it it speaks also to, I think, the opportunities that you're given, right? And so can you imagine if Mary Seacole had been given the opportunities Florence had been given? Like what she would have really contributed to society if people hadn't held her back because, as she put it, they saw uh, a duskier skin shade or they saw a berry brown woman or they saw a creole woman and she talks about it throughout her whole thing of like people are always commenting on the color of my skin even though for me you know i'm just trying to get through this life i'm just trying to help people and people can't help but comment on the color of my skin 
I, I face that even now as, as a black woman of like, what would I be able to accomplish if people just stopped caring so much about the color of my skin or the kink of my hair? And so it, it's, <laughs> it's still real. all all relevant issues all to today. Thank you, Adrian, so much for all your research and for bringing Mary to us today. She is just fantastic. And she definitely belongs on this podcast. To learn more about Mary Seacole, you can go over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. We've got some pictures and cool stuff we found about her. You can check out her and all the other broads we've covered on this podcast. While you're there, you can also click over to the About page and learn more about Adrienne. Her bio and picture and links to all her cool stuff and her social are there. Speaking of social, are you following us yet? We are on Facebook and Instagram at broadsyoushouldknow and Twitter at podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of Broads You Should Know? Then you should help spread the word. Share with your friends and family and leave us a review. Those two things really help new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if this story about Mary Seacole has you wrapped, then you are definitely going to want to hear the other side of the story and listen to our Florence Nightingale episode. And we also have a few other Dr. Broads, Mary Edwards Walker and Dr. Paulina Luisi. You should check them out too. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.